put the kettle on. It's time for some F&T. Here's your host, Kirsten Gentle. Welcome to FTNA's F&T Time, a podcast and video series aimed at keeping the industry connected and updated. What a ride it has been since the start of the pandemic. At the start, we all thought the market was going to crash and businesses began to plan for the worst, as we all thought we were going over a cliff. However, in 2020, the federal government introduced the Home Builder Program, which at the time saved the industry, and as a result, we witnessed the biggest housing boom we have seen in many decades. Builders who usually did 70 homes a year signed up 140 homes, and the big end of town were no different, signing on thousands of extra contracts thanks to the Home Builder Program. However, as we know, builders were locked into fixed-term contracts whilst building costs across the supply chain dramatically increased. We have for the past couple of years been waiting for builders to fall over and one by one we have started to see it. Builders such as PBS Building, EQ Constructions, Hamlin Homes, Decloak Building Group, National Construction Management, ProBuild, Pivotal Homes, Condev, LDC and countless more have fallen by the wayside. So are these builders going broke because of fixed term contracts and rising costs or did they actually sign up too many to begin with, which we are never going to be able to complete in the first instance? Business News Australia reported Association of Professional Builders co-founder Russ Stevens, who believes that compulsory financial education is crucial for the industry, which I can't agree with more. Russ went on to say the problem is the big building companies with their large sales teams, they've all signed up three, four, maybe even five times the number of contracts that they would normally sign in a year. All those contracts were signed on fixed price contracts, which means they lost money on all those contracts if they didn't renegotiate them before they commenced construction. With the 13th largest builder in Australia going bust, leaving 1,700 homes unfinished and a trail of creditors, we thought it would be a good time to go over what a collapse means, how it impacts fabricators and talk about how you can avoid being caught by the collapse of more builders in the future. Today to discuss this, we are joined by Jackie Rennie, Managing Director of Osbrokers Trade Credit. Jackie has experience spanning three decades with a background in finance and law, and she has worked with FTMA Australia for well over a decade. Jackie's comments are based on Jackie's analysis and that of Ausbroker's trade credit and does not constitute legal or professional advice. And FTMA encourages listeners that they should take their own advice and that takes into consideration their own circumstances. Please welcome Jackie. Thanks, Kirsten. Nice to be here. So Jackie, what does it mean when a company becomes insolvent? Can you give kind of a bit of an overview of what it means to fabricators? Sure. Um, Insolvency is a a situation where a company can't pay its debts when they fall due and there are different types of insolvencies. Um, One uh, initial stage would be administration, which is a transitional state um, where the administrators come in and determine which way a a company will proceed. It may be that they enter into what's called a deed of company arrangement. It may be at some point they hand it back to the directors or it may go down the path and end up in liquidation. And some of these big ones that we're seeing at the moment um, do take quite a bit of time, but it is a transitional state. Uh, as we've seen with uh, Porter Davis um, recently, this one's gone into liquidation and a liquidation is basically, I equate it to uh, basically the company has died just like a, a person would and, and all their assets would go into an estate and divide it up and, and given to um, beneficiaries. A liquidation is not really any different in that they do a similar thing. 
um, or we may have a receiver manager appointed, um, which generally is is uh, where a bank or a financier has appointed an insolvency practitioner, and it acts in the uh, interests of that secured creditor. So we don't tend to really have to delve into that too much, but it can coexist alongside an administration or a liquidation. Right. And so there's been a lot of discussion when it happened last Friday with Lloyds and with Porter Davis. I had calls from a few fabricators asking about the preferential payment. Can you explain the preferential payments? And is there a difference if the builder is an account holder or if they're getting COD, for example? Definitely. Well, preferential payments are where a liquidator deems that a creditor has received an advantageous position by um, receiving payments, and they can generally go back uh, six months, which is six months, which is called the relation back period. They can go further back than that if they get leave um, from the court. Um, a really important thing with preferential payments, and we'll talk a little about PPSR later too, is that preferential payments only come into play where the creditor is an unsecured creditor. Uh, in terms of the question about COD trading, um, a COD um, trade is not considered a preferential payment because there's no creditor-debtor relationship. So that's the difference between them. Um, there are some guidelines around this too. So it's not just, just simply if you've received a payment in the last six months that you are going to be done for preferential payments. Although that said, we will we'll, we do find that liquidators will have a go as such. So they'll send out letters. It's kind of, kind of they'll be on a, a pro forma letter um, and it, it sort of asks for payments. And they kind of just see whether something will fall out and, and they will often do that. We will often say to, um, to our clients, you know, generally just ignore the first one and just see what happens from there. But there are defences. So, you know, our... our um, People need to know that they. It's not just a matter of saying a liquidator saying you owe us money and you have to pay it. Absolutely not. You know, it, there there are defences such as you know they became a party to the transaction in good faith that they had no reasonable grounds for suspecting that the company was insolvent and and that was the case with a lot of the Porter Davis um, uh, tradies there. They didn't know that that was going to happen. Uh, a reasonable person in the circumstances would have had no reasonable grounds for suspecting the company was insolvent. Um, and they gave valuable consideration for payment. So there are defences. So don't just, you know, hand over that payment and think because they've sent you a letter that you actually have to have to do that. Um, as I said, they, they often just send out letters and, and see what happens. If, if you get a letter, ask the liquidator, give me the details of the payments um, they claim result in the creditor receiving an unfair preference. Reasons why they think the payment is an unfair preference, you know, including the basis on, you know, on which the liquidator claims the creditor cannot establish a, a defence, um, supporting evidence to support their claim. Um, and at the end of the day, after they've all gone through that, um, if, if they continue to push for that payment, seek independent legal advice before handing over any payment of money. So there's a bit of a course to go through. It's not just a matter of um, sitting back and panicking and hope, hoping that, um, you know, that, that it'll all go away. Um, and as I was saying earlier, if um, and we'll talk a little about the Personal Property Securities Act and, and the registration of that, they can only go you for, um, uh, for those payments if you're an unsecured creditor. And if you've registered correctly and you become a, a secured creditor, they can't come after you for preferential payments. And that's the important part around that PPSR. I remember a fabricator saying to me, I don't bother putting them on the PPSR register because I don't want the frames and trusses back. It's not like saying, hey, I want those 20 dishwashers or 20 ovens back like Harvey Norman might do, for example. But isn't isn't the reason you register under the PPSR, isn't it so you are recognised as a preferred, what is it, preferred creditor? 
uh, secured creditor. It is. Um, look, there's, there's a, been a misconception, I think, all the way along with PPSA and, and the registration in that, um, as you say, a lot of people sort of think it's all about getting your goods back. And, and most of the time you don't. You know, we, we have clients where you know, that provides a foodstuffs as an example. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't want that kind of product back. I mean, there's no point. Um, or, you know, perhaps in the in the case of, um, you know, the frame and trust manufacturers, they may have made it to spec and they, they can't sort of um, on-sell it or do anything with it other than where, where it's gone. So they may not necessarily want it back either. But the consequential benefits of registering under the Act, um, as I said and we've mentioned earlier, is that you become a secured creditor. You're not going to be subject to those those preference payments. And that's really important given, you know, what's happening at the moment. Um, the other thing is an insolvency practice, practitioner needs to account back to you if they recover money. So it's not about collecting the money, but if they have um, issued an invoice as an example and they haven't been able to the, um, the, the company hasn't been able to collect that money, but the liquidator or, or administrator comes in and collects that money. They need to account back to you as the creditor. They they don't get to keep that money. They actually have to account back to you. So that's really important too. Um, they can't remove a registration. So let's say an administrator is appointed and Porter Davis is different because it's a liquidation, but let's say they wanted to sell that company. Um, that registration sits there. So they're in a position where they have to negotiate with you to have that registration removed in order to sell that business unencumbered. Again, it puts you in a stronger position. It doesn't always work out well and, and you know, the uh, insolvency practitioners may go into fight, but it does put you in a stronger position had you not had that registration in place. So we, we do recommend that our clients do register where they can. And it's not it's not a hugely expensive process. There are companies out, out there that will um, charge for those services to do that. Um, it is a little bit more than doing it yourself, but if you get it right, it, it's, a, it's a great benefit. And we also, you know, again, we're, it's a little bit away from the um, the FTMA members, but let's say as an example, a, a hire company um, will go in there and they, they seem to think if they hire goods into a company, then once that hire is finished, they can go and bring their goods back. That's not the case. Title does change irrespective of ownership. So, you know, if you're, if you're hiring into a company, register because you want to be able to get your goods back at the end of the day. Sounds crazy, but that's how the Act actually works. Yeah. So what will happen to these properties that haven't been finished? So so with past builders, what, what's going to happen, do you think? Look, it's a really difficult one because it's it's um, if it were in administration, often an administrator will continue on trading uh, trading that company and may bring, bring back the tradies and get them to finish or they may engage other tradies to finish, etc. That's not the case with Porter Davis. It might be with um, with Lloyd. But the thing is they're also individual properties. Um, oh, look, I, I think some people are going to be left high and dry, which is a really sad state of affairs. But, you know, could um, you know could our our guys consider speaking to the people that have had unfinished properties? Go in and say, hey, we'll come in and finish um, the, this property for you, and have a separate contract with them. Perhaps that might be a way of of actually trying to recover some of that money or finish that for them because the home um, builders are, are going to want their properties finished. Someone has to come back and do that work. So maybe get on the front foot and perhaps go and speak to them um, and see what they can actually do because I don't think from the liquidator's point of view that anything really is going to happen um, from there. I think we're yet to see to see what's going to happen there. Mm. Definitely because all the sites are locked up. There's no, not even any access to the sites and, and I know people are concerned about, well, hang on, if they're at the frame and trust stand, for example, at that, um, at that stage, 
how long are they going to stand there? Are they going to still be engineered? Um, is there going to be, say, nail plate back out? If it's a steel frame, is it going to rust um, being in the, in the weather for too long, um, not being covered? So we can't actually get access to the sites to actually do any rectification works or to protect the current job. No, that's right. And, you know, who, you know, Will they get access to the sites? You know, who, who, where, where is title to the site? You know, what, and, and I guess each of them are going to be different because they'll be at different um, stages of, of construction and, or completion or whatever the case may be. So I don't think there's any one a straightforward answer for that one at the moment. I think we're just going to need to wait and see what happens, which is, you know, terrible for these poor people that, um, you know, not only waiting for their houses to be completed, but the, the tradies and, and the people in there that haven't been paid. Um, I think it's uh, there's not a, a one answer to fit all on this one, but it's kind of, it really is just just look at the options and, and the things that we're talking about and try and protect yourself as best you can at the moment. And, and in the intro, Jackie, I talked about how many builders have gone broke already and the fact that we have been expecting this for the last couple of years. I mean, we all knew those builders that, you know, sign normally 70 homes and all of a sudden they're doing 140 homes because of the home builder program. And there was always doubt as to whether or not they were going to be able to actually build them, let alone with all the constraints within the supply chain. So what do you think the future looks like? Are we going to see more big builders? I mean, 13th biggest builder is Paula Davis. Are we going to see more big builders, in your opinion, um, go to the wall? I think we're only just at the beginning, um, unfortunately. I, I think um, one of the um, discussions I've been having with uh, with our uh, bond underwriters was that the one of the issues, I think, to take it back a step, I think we've got the perfect storm. So we've got the fixed price contracting where we've had the massive increases in um, product, which is, you know, thrown all that out of um, out of whack. We've got the lack of staff. So even if you um, can get the product and, and you can stay within your constraints, you, you don't have the people to build. We've got the increase in interest rates. We've got, uh, we've got all sorts of issues going on. So we have effectively got the perfect storm. Um, the thing, people like, you know, Porter, um, Davis falling over, um, Lloyd falling over, ProBuild, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it's going to have a knock-on effect. I think from a positive perspective, I think we have to realise that construction is continuing and it is um, quite a, a booming business. But I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of companies fall over, but hopefully other companies step in um, and take over that business because somebody does still have to um, complete those projects or does have to continue with building. So again, if our uh, tradies are, are looking to deal with those people, what can we put into place to protect them and make sure that if this happens again, that they're not going to be left out in the cold and, and you know, possibly have their businesses suffer and, and, and they may fall over because of that as well. I totally agree. I mean, my heart breaks for the for the homeowners, for those sole tradies that, you know, that are just fully dependent on that particular builder. It must be very hard. Are there tips that you recommend for fabricators going forward? You know, are there questions that they should ask? Are there that there flags or, or moments that they should be looking for? What would you recommend is the best way for fabricators to protect themselves going forward? Well, well for me, there's quite a few things. And, and as you know, one of the, the products I deal in is in credit insurance. Now, that's extremely important because at the end of the day, um, you have a credit insurance policy in place and you can claim back. So the people that 
have suffered a loss with these two that have just fallen over and I've already seen claims already coming through, they will get that money back into their business. So that will that cash flow will be returned. So that's one thing. Um, and I, I guess over the years we've seen people sort of say that it's it's an expensive product and, and whatever the case may be. But we do have SME products these days. So we can start from small businesses and work up to the big ones. And that's really important. They, the, the credit insurance policy also helps with, um, uh, with with collections. It helps with credit management, etc. So all those things are sitting there as well. Um, from there, um, you, you know, we've got the PPSA registration. As we said, it's not going to put the cash flow back into the business, but it may well um, help in terms of those uh, those preference payments. So it would might mitigate the loss that they're going to have, as opposed to you know if they haven't got a policy in place, they can do that. Um, perhaps look at shorter terms of payment. Um, look at COD trade, things like that. I don't think that that's going to be out of um, out of the ordinary these days, but it may be a way that they need to do that because, you know, the thing is uh, it, it's all good business as long as you're getting paid. If you're going to give somebody credit terms and they don't pay you, well, it's not good business. So perhaps shorten those terms and keep a really close eye on it. And, and if somebody isn't paying you, then, you know, stop trading with them, um, you know, try and get it back in. But, again, I, you know, I'm very aware that it's a very competitive market and um, you know it's got to be the brave person that stands up and says I'm not giving you credit terms because you may miss out on that um, on that payment so it's a bit of a you know it's a bit of a, a sort of a narrow um, line to, to go down um, sometimes there are no red flags either because as we we're saying you know um, you know ProBuild was an example you know Lloyd was an example Porter Davis we had an idea a couple of months ago that this may well happen there were some serious concerns as there are with a, a current you know quite a few at the moment too but some just come out of nowhere um, and, and you can't yeah. see a red flag and unfortunately it, it is what it is um, and they do keep their cards very close to their chest and until such time as you turn up on a site and, you know, the gates are locked, you know, you don't know. Um, and I guess where it's, that's where I come back to credit insurance. That's what that's designed to do. And I have to say that talking to those, you know, a range of fabricators that have dealt with either Lloyd Group or Porter Davis or others that have gone bust, for the last four weeks, I've been speaking to those fabricators around Porter Davis because they were alerted by their trade credit, you know, company. So they were alerted that this was, you know, being looked at. So if you've got that trade credit in place and you're with a good insurance company, then that insurance company will give you the heads up. And, and, and I think that that's something that cannot be underestimated in regards to the value. Absolutely, 100%. The, the number of times that we've given um, clients forewarning that something was happening, even as far back as the days of Dick Smith, as an example, you know, we knew that was going to happen. You know, it was a long time ago too. But, you know, we, we help those people get out because at the end of the day, we don't want people to have claims, but, you know, that it's there in the event that they actually do. So it's about mitigating that loss, but also um, having that cover in place in the event that, um, that it does all go pear-shaped. And, and Jackie, with your experience in trade credit, I mean, the volatility that's going to come into the sector is is not only fabricators, for example, that were dealing and, and did a lot of work for Porter Davis, they're now going out to find extra work. Those trades that have maybe been burnt by, by builder going under, they're going out to try and find new jobs. How important is it for fabricators and businesses to stay on top of their costs and, and make sure that whatever they're chasing they actually have got the right cop their, their business costs in place, you know. Absolutely. I mean, this this is what I think um, most of these failures are coming about because of because they're not on top of their costs and and keeping a really close eye on things. Um, 
you know, I, I guess there's a lot of businesses out there that um, the tradies and, and what they do, they're very, very good at what they do. Um, but I think a lot more attention needs to, to be paid to, as you say, staying on top of costs and that quoting and, and, and getting your cash flow back into your business and just being a bit more on top of the business side of stuff, apart from being really good at the trades that they're they're at. So that that's extremely important. Yeah, I can't highlight that enough in terms of um, going forward. And Jackie, finally, what is the time frame? So if we're looking at this part, you know, it's not going to be fixed overnight, is it? Like what, what are we looking at, say, if we're looking at the Porter Davis, for example? Are we looking at six months? Are we looking at 12 months before you think it will be addressed for those home builders and for those trades chasing their, their payments? I think that that's a, an extremely difficult question to answer because, um, you know, as an well, I'll give you another example, like, like Arium One Steel. I mean, that that's, you know, still going on. So, and we're talking years, years it could be. Um, the fact that they're in liquidation, it might be a little bit more um, or a little bit quicker than, than perhaps an administration, but it, it could be years. And, and look, the, the amount of, of homes and um, being as large as they were, it could take a very long time. For, for it all to be resolved. What I would like to sort of say to the members out there is, you know, um, depending on the assets of that company, they may well declare dividends at some point. We don't know that. Um, it's important to sort of stay on top of um, or get a copy of the creditor's uh, um, report, et cetera, and have a look and see what's in there. There might be some money that comes out. Very importantly, if you are a creditor of this company, make sure you lodge your proof of debt um, so that they know that you are owed money. So it may not be – nothing may come out of it, but something might. So if it does, make sure that you're on that list and you've lodged your proof of debt so that you can get um, get some of your money back if it does go down that path. And just you yeah, just stay on top of what they're actually doing. Yeah. And can you just explain if they go into, you've mentioned administration or liquidation, what is the difference from a fabricator's point of view? Okay, so an administration is basically a transitional phase. So what will happen is an administrator will come in and they will run the business as if it were their own. So as if they that they sort of stand in the the shoes of the director as such. And they have a look and then they they look at ways of perhaps running the business. You know, has it been managed um, in a way that they're losing money? Could they look at a different way of doing it? Um, could they enter into what's called a deed of company arrangement whereby um, they pay out X dollar, um, X cents in the dollar in order to satisfy their, uh, their creditors, but then able to move on and keep that business running? Can they on-sell the business somewhere? So it's not dead as such. It's still just in that transitional phase. The administrator may come in and say, um, there's nothing can be done here. We need to turn off life support. Um, and then basically they die and, and then they split up the assets. So that, that's the difference between them. So administration co- can go into liquidation. Receiver manager appointed is where a secured creditor appoints an insolvency practitioner, and that's a receiver manager, and they go in and act in the best interests of their um, secured creditor. So it'll often be a bank or a financier that will do that, and they will coexist with a, a an administrator um, or a liquidator as well. So they can they both go along doing what they need to do. The administrator or the liquidator tends to act um, on behalf of the um, unsecured creditors, although the secured creditors do come into into play, obviously. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Jackie. I I mean, it's a a very complex area. As I said, I think there's going to be a lot of volatility coming into our sector, into the construction supply chain. 
we will put your contact details in the in our blurb to make sure that people can contact you if they are interested in trade credit, which I really recommend because, as we said, I know those fabricators that did have trade credit, they've been talking their way through this over the last three to four weeks to make sure that they reduced the impact on their business from the fallout from Porter Davis. So thank you very much, Jackie. We truly appreciate all the work you've done for our sector over the past few decades. It's been fantastic having you. And um, as I said, hopefully we don't see more, but I do think, as you said, it is the start. So it's a time for fabricators to get on top of it. Thanks, Kirsten. My pleasure. We hope listeners found Jackie's tips helpful, as now is the time to ensure you are on top of all your builders' debts. FTMA has been working closely with Jackie at Ausbrokers Trade Credit and AB Phillips since our inception, and Jackie has made the kind offer that if any members would like to talk further on this, she is happy to take your call and guide you through the options. FTMA also works closely with Alaris, which is, in our opinion, a must for all fabricators. With Alaris, you can monitor your builders for $5 each per year. So if you have 50 builders on the books, you're only looking at $250 per annum to be notified of any court appearances. Reminder to members that FTMA also has the Bad Builder Program. If your builder has long overdue debts, you can notify FTMA Australia, who will do a credit check and ask any other fabricators in that state if they use that particular builder. And if they do, we will provide the credit check to members, as we don't want to see any fabric caught out by builders going bust. We will also include Jackie's contact details in the blurb, so if you wish to discuss trade credit options, give Jackie a bell. Once again, thanks for listening to another F&D Time. Thank you. 